0: Welcome to the So What Question, a podcast for historians to share what they do and why it matters. I'm Evan Falkenberry. In today's episode, you're going to hear from Jeremy C. Young, an assistant professor of history at Dixie State University in Utah, about his recent book, The Age of Charisma, Leaders, Followers, and Emotions in American Society, 1870 to 1940. So in our conversation, we talk about how all of these religious and political leaders at the turn of the 20th century developed a new kind of speaking style, a new persona full of charisma and energy that created movements and followers in mass. We talk about such figures as Eugene Debs, Woodrow Wilson, Billy Sunday, and several others as examples for these kinds of changes. And what Jung discovers is it's not so much these leaders are controlling the movements with their charisma but rather the followers actually become in control of these movements and the leaders through their charismatic styles they have to keep up and rely on even more and of course we talk about the most recent presidential election and how Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and their campaigns reflected some of these earlier changes in American society but I begin by asking Jeremy just how he got interested in following the history of charismatic leadership in the United States.
1: I was always interested in the issues of emotion in politics and of emotional leadership and the relationship between leaders and followers. I wasn't necessarily when I began graduate school sure what I wanted to do with that. In fact, I originally when I applied to graduate school, I told, all of the professors I was considering working with that I wanted to write a book about Woodrow Wilson. And basically a, a book very similar to John Milton Cooper's book about him or Arthur uh, August Heckscher's book about him, arguing that uh, the League of Nations was a good thing and Woodrow Wilson was a great leader. And... <laughs> I was quickly disabused of that notion because I really didn't have anything new to say about Woodrow Wilson. And right. ultimately, even now, I I don't really agree with what I wanted to say about Wilson initially. My advisor, Michael McGurr at Indiana University, um, very wisely encouraged me. He didn't reject that idea. He just encouraged me to think about what it was about Woodrow Wilson that particularly interested me and what it was that I really wanted to say about and I realized that what I was interested in was not so much the League of Nations, but more the way that Wilson's speeches had this emotional content and the way that people reacted to him emotionally. And so we started working on a project about leadership. And for a while, I said that I was doing studying the history of leadership in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. But ultimately, I came to the conclusion that I was more studying the history of followership. I was studying what it was like to listen to a charismatic leader and to engage with them on an emotional level. And that's when I really found what I wanted to talk about. So I like to say I did, in fact, write a book about Woodrow Wilson. He does have a half a chapter in this book, but only after I figured out what I really wanted to say about it.
0: Yeah, so what was it, I mean, about... I don't know whether it was growing up or in school or whatever. I mean, were you have you been political or have you been interested in politics and that history? And have you had like a longer, I guess, interest in the way that people follow politics before you came to this project?
1: I was a political junkie as a kid, um, and I uh, really I, a political junkie without necessarily a defined ideology. Until I got to college, um, I was very uh, I'm excited about this uh, local city councilman in Arizona, where I was growing up, uh, and then when I turned 13, uh, my mother decided as a birthday present to invite him to, to lunch, <laughs> wow. which, was, uh, which was a very interesting and formative experience for me. Uh, it was a small town, so it wasn't that hard to get hold of them. And then I became, in high school, very enamored of my state senator, John McCain, who was running for president in 2000. And then in college, I was a fanatical supporter of Howard Dean. And what all of that had in common for me was that I was very interested in the ways that that emotions worked in these political relationships. I didn't, as you can tell from that eclectic list of candidates, I wasn't particularly interested in in their ideas i i did develop a political ideology but only later i was more interested in the way that they connected with people like me who were uh, who were emotional charismatic followers if you will and eventually i wanted to study that in a historical context because i felt sort of i i spent a lot of time as a as a kid and in college feeling that our politics were deprived of the kind of emotion that people like Theodore Roosevelt and Wilson brought to politics in the progressive era only after I undertook an exhaustive study of those figures did I decide that in fact Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson were not as charismatic as I thought they were (laughs) and other people were more charismatic in the same time period.
0: So maybe it's worth now kind of stopping and resetting and of course you write about this but you know what do you mean by charisma and what do you mean by politicians having a charismatic personality?
1: So charisma is an anachronism in the time period that I discuss. It was uh, not used in the United States until the 1940s because it was an import. It was a, a concept developed Although he didn't invent the word, the concept of charisma was developed by Max Weber, the German sociologist. And Weber was thinking a little bit about American politics. He talks about Theodore Roosevelt as a charismatic figure in the election of 1912, but he was primarily thinking about uh, German politics and people like Otto von Bismarck and the Kaiser. And his his writings on charisma aren't published until after his death, and they're not translated into into English until the late 1930s. The re- I use the term... It, as a sort of term of art, I don't necessarily mean by charisma in the book what we mean by charisma uh, in a lay sense. So charisma in the book has three overlapping meanings. First, it's a uh, uniquely emotional style of public speaking that was prominent in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and not at other times. Uh, The contemporaries called this style personal magnetism, Um, And so I use that term as well. The second meaning of charisma is an emotional relationship between a magnetic leader and a charismatic follower. Uh, And I spend a lot of time in the book chronicling that as well. And the final meaning of charisma is a discourse of democracy. It's a way of discussing the idea of popular participation in government and the role of emotions in democratic politics. And that's also something that a lot of people uh, are arguing about not only in the time period I study but in the present day as well
0: so what was or what were politics like maybe in the late 18th century and in the early republic before charisma or before charismatic leadership kind of took hold as, as far as what you study not maybe not just politics because you don't just study politicians but also right. religious leaders too or um, in social movements in general, and other activists. But I guess I'm curious to to know kind of when or how this charismatic leadership developed, and then what 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 characterized leadership before that. Um, Carolyn Eastman
1: has a wonderful book about, uh, public speaking in the early Republic called a nation of speechifiers that really chronicles that period very well. And it certainly is true that public figures gave a lot of speeches. Daniel Webster, of course, was famous for his speeches, Henry Clay as well. But the difference is that they weren't supposed to use those speeches while campaigning. The point of giving those speeches was not to forge emotional connections with followers. The point was to advertise their ideas and to defeat uh, essentially to engage in a debate with opposing politicians and defeat them on the intellectual battlefield and in fact politicians were not supposed to engage emotionally with voters at all they were supposed to uh, not what if you ran for president, you weren't supposed to engage to, to campaign, you weren't supposed to even speak to voters at all because that was seen as demagoguery and as a politician being too influenced by the people that he was supposed to use his intelligence to guide. In religious movements, this begins to change first because largely of the Second Great Awakening. Of course, there's a little bit of this in the First Great Awakening in the eighteen in the 1730s and 40s, but in the early 1800s, the the Second Great Awakening, uh, and particularly the figure of Charles Grandison Finney, really embraces this idea of emotions as a way to using people's emotions, manipulating their emotions in order to achieve conversions. And it's hard to argue with that because they their view is that conversions are how you go to heaven. So who cares how you get there, right? As long if, if you can use someone's emotions to get them to convert, then it's well worth it because you're saving their eternal soul. It's only in the 1870s when Americans begin to embrace the idea of using emotions in politics. And it's not all Americans who embrace it. There's a lot of criticisms of it as well, people like Henry Watterson, the editor of the Louisville Courier Journal, describe charismatic politics as hysterical screaming and attack it in a variety of ways. Uh, But it really centers on this style of public speaking that develops in that time period and becomes popular in the late 1800s. And that's the main reason that attitudes on this seem to change.
0: So I'm curious just to know how, you know, as a researcher and as a historian, how you kind of put all the pieces together and how you um, you know, you looked at multiple archives, I imagine, and, and multiple sources, and kind of weave together a story that's not at once just political or social, but kind of or religious, but brings them all together. Um,
1: I, that's a very good question, and this is a project that couldn't have been done just twenty years ago uh, because it relies very much on new technologies, particularly data mining technologies involving newspaper databases. I started out uh, in in studying this question, simply, uh, doing database searches for the word magnetism and magnetic. Um, and I found all sorts of things. I found, uh, discussions of, uh, magnetism as a quality that gardeners had that allowed them to grow plants, uh, magnetism as something that people had that stopped the watches on their wrists. Uh, somebody talked about, uh, expert fishermen having magnetism that enticed fish out of the water. Uh, And I also found a number of discussions, and these these, these definitions of magnetism draw on Franz Anton Mesmer's uh, magnetic fluid theory from the early 1800s. But as I got later into the 1800s and into the 1900s, the term magnetism comes to refer overwhelmingly to this style of public speaking. And that got me invested in looking at the archives of Billy Sunday, uh, the archives of of William Jennings Bryan and of Eugene Debs, all of which had extensive collections of letters that people had written them talking about their speaking style and how how it moved them emotionally. Also, I did a lot of archival research for this project, but in some cases, uh, some of the most useful things that I found were secondary literature that was very old, that had not been studied in a long time. There's a series of books edited by William Norwood Briggins, uh, who was a speech professor at Wabash college in the 1940s, uh, history of, of public address or something like that. Those books were they contain individual chapters that are exhaustive discussions of individual leaders' speaking styles that drew me to a number of different sources um, and were really very helpful. So so database searching and those forgotten secondary sources played a very large role. A History and Criticism of American Public Address, that's what that book is called.
0: You mentioned three in particular, and you have a lot of characters in your book a lot of examples um you have a nice range but you mentioned billy sunday william jennings Bryan, and eugene debs of course billy sunday the uh, revivalist preacher and then um brian and and deb deb's a socialist um brian a politician a populist all that sort of thing so maybe can you talk about those three in particular what was their speech styles like how did they craft it how did they get a following because of their charisma or their magnetism.
1: Probably the most explosive and shocking thing that I discovered doing this research is that uh, the speaking style, I had assumed from the very beginning that the speaking style that people like Brian and Sunday and Debs used was simply something they picked up in the culture was the way that people were trained to enjoy public speaking and good public speakers simply went where the audience was. But people that I knew kept, prodding me to try to find out more about the speaking style and where it came from. Uh, In particular, my wife, who is a a linguist, um, said that there must be some origin for the speaking style. And so right near the end of finishing up my dissertation, I looked into some of the secondary literature that I mentioned previously and started doing some research in the history of speech education in America, and it turned out that... William Jennings Bryan, Billy Sunday, Henry Ward Beecher, Wendell Phillips and several other of the of the most important charismatic speakers had all studied from textbooks that were based on the same work uh, a book called The Philosophy of the Human Voice by uh, written by James Rush the son of Benjamin Rush signer of the Declaration of Independence. Oh yeah. And and this book which was, I mean, the book itself was unreadable, 600 pages of dense theory, but it was made into a series of textbooks by other authors, it describes with great precision how all of these people spoke. And in fact, uh, one of the textbooks combined this speaking style with a gestural system borrowed from um, an English clergyman, which... There are illustrations of this gestural system in the textbook, and there are photographs of William Jennings Bryan speaking in 1908. They are exactly the same. In one of the photographs, Bryan's feet are placed in the same way that they are in the illustration that corresponds to the motion that he's making. It's just astonishing. These, this was not a style that, that developed naturally, although some people, like Eugene Debs, who didn't have training in it, uh, adopted it from seeing other people use it. But it was a style that was taught in speaking public speaking classes. And not all public speaking teachers used this style, and the ones who didn't, their students did, generally did not do as well. The, the, the amazing thing about this is that these students, the students, the people who studied this style, you know, this, the book is written in 1827, and it's only in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s that this style begins to bear fruit. And that's because the textbooks are published in the, in the 1830s, and people have to read them and then grow up and become prominent leaders before you start to hear the effects of the style. Now, what's surprising to me is that no one at the time had any idea that this was going on, with the exception of Henry Ward Beecher, who wrote about how he was influenced by these textbooks. Nobody else really thought that their elocution training was particularly important in in shaping their speaking style. And people, ordinary Americans, who wrote about personal magnetism in their letters and newspaper columns, Never mentioned James Rush. They didn't realize that they were listening to a, cr- a crafted, created style invented by someone in the early 1800s. But that's exactly what they were doing.
0: I guess I was wondering more about the audiences, two audiences in particular. Both followers of Billy Sunday, Brian, Debs, all these others you mentioned, and also the press. So, you know, for regular people, what was it about? you know, just a kind of personal magnetism, a speeching style that drew them in. And also from the press, their point of view, I mean, what was it that captured the press? Because you have a lot of accounts, newspaper um, uh, journalists writing about a style of a speaker. So what was it that like drew in the press to write about this in, in these particular ways as well? So both the people and the press.
1: Two good questions. So. Um, every charismatic speaker had a basic formula that included three elements. They would begin their performance not by speaking but with a musical performance either a hymn sing if it was a, if it was an evangelist or a brass band if it was a politician. And then they would follow that up with the speech and then they would conclude with a handshake. They would basically make themselves available to shake hands with their uh, with their followers uh, as many as wanted to. And that handshake sort of cemented each one of those of those aspects played an important role in in the charismatic experience. Followers would become emotionally, sort of free up their emotions through the music. Then they listened to the speaking style and it was simply emotionally affecting to them. It's hard to know why in particular they were drawn to it, but it is a very emotional style. It has a a very wide range of pitches, a wide range of volumes, uh, very over the top gestures, uh, and followers, it's the kind of style that you're not going to be bored by. Either you're going to think it's ridiculous and a little unsettling, or you're going to be deeply moved by it. And so followers generally were deeply moved by it. And then in the handshake, that gives them an opportunity to cement their emotional connection with the leader. People talk about these handshakes decades later as the moment when they realized that they were destined to follow this leader forever. Uh, It's it's very affecting for them. As far as the press, um, journalists in some cases are supportive of charisma. In some cases, they're opposed to it. Henry Watterson calling it hysterical screaming. And in other cases, they're just completely baffled by it. Um, There's (laughs) there's a, a, a journalist who writes an article about the Pennsylvania boss Matthew Stanley Quay who was notoriously corrupt and he says why is it that Matthew Stanley Quay got this incredible standing ovation at I think the, I can't remember what party he was in the Republican National Convention um, and it doesn't make any sense he's corrupt he sells out the people's interests and yet people cheer for him like they cheer for no one else it must be because of personal magnetism. So journalists are very interested in trying to understand the style. Some of them are, are more skeptical than the audiences that they cover, but others are just remarkably impressed
0: by the effect that this style has on audiences, and in some cases
1: on the journalists themselves.
0: You don't certainly don't make it appear that the followers of these uh, charismatic leaders, they're not dummies just falling for you know charisma. They're not being fleeced, but... You know, you, part of what you're writing about is how, you know, the charisma charges up the followers in a sense, and like they become part of a movement for something greater. So I guess I'm curious too about how charisma motivates, uh, what kind of action it leads to, um, whether from, you know, a religious angle, a political angle or something like that. But how, you, how did you measure reactions and um, changes in people? Um, I measure it simply by looking
1: at their at their letters and at their testimonials and how they describe their their activities. Uh, followers use a distinctively sacralized or religious language when they talk about followership. They refer to their to charismatic leaders as Moses or Jesus leading them out of poverty or whatever it is that they're being led out of. They they use religious metaphors. In fact, that's the way that I generally determine whether a, a, a follower is charismatically influenced or not is whether they use this sort of religious language. And followers talk about being uh, being unhappy, being something—generally They generally what they don't talk about is what's going on in their society. Um, followers often are being influenced by the cultural upheavals of industrial capitalism, but they don't talk about that in their letters. They talk about being sinful or having something going wrong in their marriage or something in their family, and they— they then go and hear the leader speak, and they are completely and utterly transformed. In some cases, followers try to change their their lifestyles to match what the leader tells them to do. In other cases, they try to act like the leader. Um, one letter writer says he goes around to meetings and people call him Billy Sunday, and he thinks that's great because he loves Billy Sunday and wants to be just like him. And uh, but they they do more than that. They don't just transform themselves. They also transform uh, society. They engage in, if they're religious followers, in in conversions of others. Uh, One wealthy follower of Billy Sunday, Lucius A. Eddy, a bank president in Syracuse, New York, converted 4,000 people because he was converted by Billy Sunday. They uh, form clubs designed to promote uh, Billy Sunday's message or William Jennings Bryan's uh, free silver ideology, or in some cases, They get directly involved in the campaign himself. There's a letter from a a follower of William Jennings Bryan saying that he's given up his business to work full time for the campaign. Another follower of Bryan, a medical doctor, writes to Bryan and says that he uh, wants to give up his practice and become Bryan's private secretary and physician. Uh, so that he can advance the cause. So followers gain this incredible intensity of commitment. They become committed volunteers and activists, not simply supporters. And this uh, plays a very large role in furthering their movements. So the conclusion that I come to really is that followers are in some ways in control of these movements because the only reason that people like Brian or Sunday or Debs are as successful as they are is because they're able to draw so much support from followers. When followers abandon charismatic leaders, charismatic leaders can't succeed on their own. Charisma is something that is very racialized and gendered in in American history. Uh, It's not a surprise that all the people that I've talked about are white men, because when white women and African-American men and women attempt to use this style, they are... uh, often attacked uh, for use doing the same things that a white man would be accepted for doing um henry adams famously writes that listening to a woman speak charismatically listening to the moo of the cow the bray of the ass or the bark of a dog and that is the general attitude that is aimed at people who are not white men who try to use this style and i think it's also important to note that a lot of women and African Americans were effective at using the style anyway, but they had to tweak it in certain ways to get around that prejudice that was per- pervasive in American society and really that I think has not gone away.
0: So did charismatic leaders ever promise too much or did you know what they were talking about and the way they talked about it, did it lead to let down? I mean, did people get so hyped up and sold out, sold their businesses, you know, converted the masses, <laughs> but then, you know, you know, things happen and not everything always works out the way that you believe is going to. So I'm wondering about, you know, failed promises, things that didn't work out like Brian not ever becoming president. You know, what happened to the people that were so sold out for them?
1: Charisma tends to be something that is used by politicians and activists who are not able to succeed using more traditional mechanisms. So it is often used by people who are already going to fail before they adopt charisma as a sort of hail mary and because of that a lot of these people did fail william jennings bryan runs for president three times doesn't win a single time um deb's doesn't even come close to winning of course and what happens is because they fail uh it, it actually keeps them from disappointing their followers <laughs> because it it Followers don't get disappointed when you fail, they get disappointed when you win and then don't do what you, what, what you tell them you were going to do. If Brian had become president and nothing in their society had really changed, then they might have become very disillusioned, but that never happened. The other thing is a little bit of this is selection bias, because we don't really have letters from people who say, I loved you, William Jennings Bryan, but then you failed to get elected and now I'm mad at you and I wish I'd never followed you. Those people don't tend to write letters, uh, and if they do write letters, those letters don't tend to be saved. By the private secretaries who are collecting letters for these figures, so we only tend to hear from the people who are, who had a good experience.
0: You end your study around 1940, but um, you know, how does this, you know, new wave of charismatic leadership how does it change American democracy? I think that's one of the, you know, the finer points of your book about the kind of long-term change that uh, that it institutes and the way people communicate, the way leadership. Uh, functions, the way politics moves forward, the way that religion works and spreads. The speaking style of personal magnetism obviously is dead, right?
1: We we can hear this in early recordings of, of William Jennings Bryan and other figures in the 1920s but after that it really it really dies out and you never hear it again. What does happen is that this that the other two aspects of charisma, the charismatic relationship, the emotional connection between leaders and followers, that survives into the present day. As does this pervasive sense that politicians and other types of leaders really owe a certain emotional availability to their followers. Never again do you have presidential candidates who lock themselves away in their house and fail to campaign for office, even if they're not good at campaigning. They have to shake hands, kiss babies, give speeches, and be emotionally available or they're viewed as undemocratic and elitist. Uh, Same thing with ministers. Rarely do you see ministers who just shuffle out onto the stage, read their prepared text and leave and never never even make eye contact with their congregation. That is something that's just gone. And so this idea that to be a leader, you have to be emotionally available to your, to your followers. That's something that really is a lasting legacy of charisma into the present day. And I think it's something that we really owe not to the speaking style, but to the followers themselves who came to demand this as part of their experience.
0: Well, I got to ask about Donald Trump. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I get exactly what you're saying about that kind of charismatic leadership is, um, you know, no longer is around. But, of course, you know, Trump had some kind of charisma to him that attracted enough followers uh, to to put him into the White House. So I just wonder, you know, what connections you might see between some of these charismatic leaders of um, late 19th, early 20th century and our current president, Donald Trump?
1: Well, when I watched in particular the rallies
0: that Trump was holding and also the
1: rallies that Bernie Sanders was holding in 2015 and 2016, I thought to myself, I've seen this before. (laughs) It was very, very much an evocation of what I had been reading about. And this kind of rally-based politics really uh, has not been particularly prominent in American society since the 1920s because it's been overwhelmed by the politics of advertising. Here we had two candidates that at least initially didn't spend a lot of money—Trump had a lot of money but didn't spend it, and Sanders did not have a lot of money—using the rally to get their message out to get armies of committed volunteers to carry their message uh, without having to use advertising in the way that more traditional campaigns did. And certainly their speaking styles are not the same as the style of personal magnetism, and they added new innovations to the style of charisma. So, for instance, Donald Trump was able to get the media to cover his rallies on a national level, um, which allowed him both to have in-person contact with the voters at the rallies, but also to have – to use them as national – public service announcements to to or infomercials for his campaign. And Sanders was able to monetize his rallies by taking down people's email addresses and then using them to uh, recruit money to fund his campaign very effectively by the end. Um, my take on this, uh, and I'll, I'll give you an apolitical answer here. My take is, uh, whatever your politics, charisma is a tool that can be used for good or for ill. Uh, and I think it's an effective tool, and I think it's a tool that people of all political stripes should be trying to use today as they try to influence the way our society will go in the future. I think it's a book that is very interesting to a general audience, both because it's just full of interesting anecdotes. Um, You you get to read about James Rush uh, trying out his charismatic theories on his horses, and the woman who sued uh, John Philip Sousa, arguing that it was illegal for him to use his own name and promoting his his, his works because she owned the copyright to it and all sorts of fun stuff like that. But in terms of the argument, I think it's a very relevant argument to a general audience. I think that this is a book that, and it doesn't make the point explicitly it, explicitly it's about history, but I think it's, it's something that a book that has a lot to say to us today. I think it has to tell us about the importance of emotion in politics and in society and that it that it's something that we need to embrace as a society that we need to embrace in all parts of the political spectrum and that we we need to understand that emotional experience of politics does not mean idiocy It does not mean ignorance it it means it's a different way of engaging with, with ideas and engaging with leadership and it's something that a lot of americans do and it's something that uh that i think um, is, is something that we really should, should keep in mind going forward. There's this wonderful quote by Henry Ward Beecher, perhaps the most effective charismatic speaker in the entire movement, who was a, a minister and the brother of uh, Harry Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And Henry Ward Beecher says in his, uh, in his Yale Lectures on Preaching in 1872, he says, There is in every congregation, perhaps six to one, who will watch for the emotional part of the sermon saying, that is the preaching I want, I can understand what I feel. And he says, they are fed by their hearts, they have as much right to be fed by their hearts as the others have to be fed by their reason. And I think right there he's expressed the message of the book and really the message that I hope he brings to a general audience.
0: Thanks for listening to the So What Question visit our website at sowhatquestion.wordpress.com. Follow and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please rate and leave comments for us as well. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode.